0: Well, we'll continue our series looking at uh, various values of our church. Um, we look the first week at worship that we want a word-driven um, gospel storied worship where we tell the story of redemption week in and week out to each other. And then we, last week, we looked at the call to community, that we, are, we want to value community. Um, we are a people who live life together. We are a one anothering together, the fellowship of believers. And so this week, we were looking at our third aspect of uh, what we reminding us why we exist as a church, and that is to serve our city. To serve our city. Jesus said he came, as we read last week, not to be served, but to stir, serve. When Jesus looked over cities, what was his response? To see the brokenness and the hardness of heart and the idolatry and to weep over those cities. When he saw the lame and the broken, he empathized with them and he touched them. Touched them. It's a profound word in the midst of a pandemic. He touched them. He longed for people to be with him, to be near them. We value at our church, or we want to be, perhaps this is more aspirational sometimes than a reality, but we long to be a church that serves our city because our city is full of what? Image bears. When Jonah looks over the city of Nineveh, and he's mad at God for saving the city of Nineveh, God says, listen, I've got all these people in the city of Nineveh, and if you don't care about them, I even have this many cows. If you care more about cows, that's funny, isn't it, Ryan Ayers? Uh, <laughs> that's how Ryan views the value of the city. We know we love, we love Carrollton, but this is not our lasting city, but the city, we love the city that is the cone. But if you love the city to come, the place where it's going to come is come here. And we envision a place, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to come here? And how can we labor? So the people of Carrollton could experience that. We know that we are called as a church to be a light in the darkness, to be a city on a hill. We as God's people are called to be a foretaste, a smaller city that reflects God's work in the world. And so if the church as an alternative city seeks to reflect to the world the coming of Christ's city, what will that mean for how we live now? Well, we'll seek to serve the city to die for the city, to reach out for the city so that we might welcome others in to this alternative city, welcome others in to the kingdom of God. And so it is that word welcome, we're we'll looking at a different word, a word akin to it, which is hospitality. That while we want to have worship that is gospel-stored and we want a one another in kind of growth together, that we also want to serve our city through what we'll call radical hospitality. This is at the core of the Christian message, and the Christian mission is hospitality. We're going to, this is a topical sermon. We're going to preach from two particular texts. I'm not going to be looking to exegete them. Um, so for those of you looking for a verse-by-verse exposition, this is not it this morning. We are looking at this topically, but in order to engage with some of the full arc of what the scriptures say about radical hospitality, we're going to look at a number of passages. We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 13. And then we're going to drop down halfway through that to halfway through that chapter where it says this. First it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And then going on later on in chapter 13, where where the writer of Hebrews roots that command in verse 2, along with many others, says, So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek seek the city that is to come. For through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And in that, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then we're going to read of this parable from Luke chapter 14. Verses 12 through 21, it says here, Jesus said to the man who had invited him, Jesus is at a feast, a banqueting table with others, and he said to the man who had invited him, when you give dinner or a banquet, do not invite simply your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be paid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for now everything is ready. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Now go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Let's pray. God, transform our minds as to what radical t- hospitality looks like. And change our hearts so that we look at our city and long to serve it. As opposed to evaluating cities based on what they give us. Lord, would we not simply see the brokenness of Carrollton and Carroll County? Oh Lord, there is much to be grieved about. Much of it is hidden in parks that we cannot see, in homes that we cannot glance in, in hearts that are too shattered, but externally we cannot see. But, Lord, give us eyes to see. And, Lord, when we see the brokenness, would anger, which may be our first response, though lead to acts of justice and kindness and goodness and mercy. So, Lord, I pray that you would do do that and empower us this morning through your word to take up this great call. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hospitality, radical hospitality. We as a church, if we are to have be of a powerful force in our community, must rediscover the incredibly ordinary but utterly radical practice of hospitality. Hospitality is powerful. For most of you, if you were to look back at your life, probably it is those who were hospitable to you Were radically change change agents in your life when you invite someone into your life and invite them into yours and you invade theirs. Is something powerful can happen. In the one of the most um, beautiful descriptions in movie theater history, uh, the play *Les Mis*. It is there at the midst or the core of that movie. What changes the life of the main character was the hospitality. Of an old man. The catalytic event that changed Jean Valjean's life was an act of beautiful hospitality. You see, he was a slave. He had been thrown in prison for years for stealing bread in order to provide food for his family. And after years in prison and backbreaking labor, he had been patrolled. And as a felon in that day, he wandered. No one would give him a job, no one would take him in until he finds the door of an old priest. And the priest invites him into his house with these words. Come in, sir, for you are weary, and the night is cold out there. And though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong, and there is a bread to to rest in till morning. Rest from your pain and rest from wrong. Why is hospitality such a powerful thing? It is because it is embodied love. It is a love that gets close. And in love that takes risks, it is love with flesh on it. Hospitality is indeed the Jesus way of doing ministry, even if you don't have a home, like Jesus didn't have a home. Tim Chester in his book, Meals with Jesus, said it this way. He said, Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on big events. He ate meals. He ate meals and he invited others to sit with them. Hosp- hospitality has, if you look at the history of the church, has been a calling card of the church for the vast majority of our history. The first hospital ever founded was by a woman named Fabiola. She was a woman of great wealth who constructed a hospital to care for the needs of the sick during a time of a pandemic and used her great wealth to care for the impoverished with her own hands and her own money. And therefore, when you pass a hospital, maybe when you go to work at a hospital tomorrow, remind yourself of the ancient call of Christians that we are to be a people who are engaged in what? Hospitality. That's where the word came from. Hospitality. In fact, if you were to look throughout the history of the church, if for much of the Middle Ages, in a place that was known for its great darkness, if you were a traveler in the Middle Ages and you are looking for a safe place, the place where you would look is the lights of a church or some sort of monastery. And the rules of Saint Benedict, in establishing his particular order within the Catholic Church, in Chapter fifty-three, they had a whole chapter on welcoming guests. Can you imagine having that many rules? But all the guests, it says, were to present themselves are to be welcomed, it says there, as Christ, for he himself, as it says in Matthew, for I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And it goes on to say that once a guest has been announced to the brothers, they should welcome him with respect and love. Christ, this brother, is to be adored by welcoming him, that is Jesus, in them. And the abbot and the entire community would then wash this visitor's feet. Feed them and clothe them was the rule. The church has been known to be a place for safety and lodging and food and protection and welcome. And if you were to actually read the sermons throughout even the Middle Ages and into the Reformation and post-Reformation, if you were to read Calvin or Luther, these guys who are known for being stodgy theologians, what you'll actually see as a theme that comes up time and time again is the theme of hospitality as a core part of Christian witness. The church's hospitality has stood out like a beacon of light in the most evil storms of darkness in the world's history. You may have heard of an old woman who went around the world in the 20th century preaching forgiveness. Her name was Corrie Corrie Ten Boom. But she did not begin by preaching forgiveness. First, she began the labor of hospitality. See, she came from a family in the Netherlands, and the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in the 1940s, early part of that year, and began rounding up political enemies including the Jews and others. And one day, someone in a desperate situation came to, to her door, and her father said that we will extend a care to this woman, and we will hide her, and we will provide her protection. And the word got out, and so others came. And they began to hide more and more people, and so much so that they built a false room in their house in order to safely hide away these people. But eventually, one day, the Nazis found out about it, and the police came to their door. Others had snitched on them, and they came and they arrested them and they took them away. Even while they were hurt, Corey's family were hiding six Jews in their hidden room, five of whom, all of them escaped, and five of whom lived through the war. They took Corey and her sister and her father to Ravensbrook, where within ten days her father died, and later her sister, who would die as well. And Corey, in struggling with the Nazis, she hated them, and yet her sister said to her, Corey, no matter how deep is the pit of darkness and evil, remember that God's love is deeper still. And after Betsy's death, Cory took that to heart, and when the war was over, Corey and her family reopened their home to hospitality as a refuge for Jews who had been displaced during the war. Now that is something. But what I find far more profound is this. that not only did they help Jews who had been displaced, but they also helped those from the Dutch people who had collaborated with the Nazis and provided refuge for them in a society that now hated them and had ostracized them from the community. It took up right where they left off. They were regarded as vile in their culture, and yet Corey said, "We will shelter them and give them a home." This is the church to be the light of goodness shining forth in a world of evil. See, it's been said that the front door to the church has always been the front door to the church, the side door to the church has always been the front door of Christian homes, but we. In large part because of the nature of Western civilization, we have lost the heart of hospitality, and therefore we have lost much of our opportunity as a witness. We live in a world where people, we don't have time because we filled our time. We are overscheduled, we are frenzied, and we are overcommitted. And we have embraced what I would call a bastardized version of the biblical idea of family, and we have entitled it the nuclear family. We have given a place to family, me and mine, that is so small and so narrow, it does no longer fit anywhere close to the biblical understanding of a household or a family life. What was once the calling card of the church has been whittled down into something weak and frail and sickly, something we call the gift of hospitality, which, by the way, the Bible never talks about. No one has the gift of hospitality. It does talk about the characteristic of those who would seek to be leaders in the church as being required to be hospitable. And so this is to be the heart of our ministry, that our neighbors, they may struggle and they wander in this world of difficulty and disconnection. And the question is, are they looking to the church anymore for that place? Or for perhaps even the more important question is, are we looking for them at all? This is to be the heart of the ministry of the church, and so it must be recovered. Henry Now, in his book, Reaching Out, said this, If there is any concept worth restoring from the history of the church, it is the concept of hospitality. he talks about, that in that book, to giving an illustration of what hospitality, what it looks like, and why it is so critical. He tells the story of one older woman who had a terminal illness. And she had been essentially neglected by her family in her terminal illness. They hardly came to see her. And she expressed to now in the painful frustration of being vulnerable and needy in a world that is overscheduled. Her children and her grandchildren had no time for her. She wanted to be cooked for, listened to, and comforted, and her slow walk to death. She needed to talk about death, and she needed permission to express her feelings. She wanted, and she needed time with those who were important to her. The woman said to him... I am not afraid to die, but I want someone to be there holding my hand. Don't you long to be a church where people feel welcome, where people do not die by themselves, where we are hospitable and we enter those rooms with them? A church where we can say to battered and weary travelers, come in, sir. For you are weary, and the night is cold out there. And though our lives are humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you, and there is bread to make you strong. But to be that place, we must rediscover hospitality. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Three things I want you to see. First, if we're going to rediscover hospitality, we have to re-understand, or understand for the first time, hospitality biblically a couple years ago a book came out called The Gospel Comes with a House Key it's written by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield whose own story was particularly aided in coming to the Lord through radical hospitality if you ever want to read really good writing the kind of writing that that cuts you but you don't know it till later and you realize you're bleeding out back read that book here's what she how she describes hospitality radical ordinary hospitality is this Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to turn strangers into neighbors and neighbors into the family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and takes the hand of a stranger and puts it into the hand of the Savior. Here's the most basic way of understanding biblical hospitality is simply to understand what the Bible meant when it translates the word, Greek word, into the word hospitality. The Greek word is the word xenia. Two words there, the root word philo or phila, which means love. We get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But xenia, where do we get that? What's that word? You most often hear the root word xenia in our term xenophobia which means to be afraid of strangers. So the opposite of xenophobia is xenophilia, which is that you love what? Strangers. That's what the word hospitality is. It is love, extending love to strangers. Hospitality, extending to strangers, a quality of kindness that you usually reserve only for your closest friends and families. And this is the New Testament brings us up in a number of places to cut us deep. Hebrews 13 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to whom? Strangers. Matthew 25, Jesus said, I was a stranger and you took care of me. And so we ask the question, just like the Pharisees asked when Jesus says to love your neighbors, they go, well, who's my neighbor? And so we ask the question, who are strangers to us? Well, I love what the Puritan, John Owen says, how he describes what a stranger is. He says, a stranger is one whose story you don't yet know unless you ask. One whose story you don't yet know. You see, biblical hospitality... Must We must re-understand it in Bible terms and in the biblical description. It is to be shockingly ordinary, radically sacrificial, and relationally disrupting in the way of making strangers into sons if we were to do a brief survey of the study of hospitality in the Bible, here's what we would find. First, in 1 Peter chapter 4, it tells us that biblical hospitality will involve real sacrifice and a real disruption to our lives. And here's how we know. Because in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, show hospitality without grumbling. Be hospitable without grumbling. Now, why the admonishment not to grumble? That's something we usually reserve for our children on vacations. Because the guest... Because we know if you have guests in your home, if you invite people in their lives, they might take advantage of you. They might upset you. Their children might spill on your couch. The socially awkward might find their way to your table. And people will take advantage of your generosity, and you aren't supposed to grumble about it. You're supposed to be even more hospitable. Biblical hospitality requires us to learn the sole art of the discipline stewarding of our financial and physical resources. While at the same time being willing and submissive to God who might, dare I say, foolishly give your resources to those who are quote unquote undeserving. Luke 14 tells us also about biblical hospitality, that it's a service without economic or social benefit. Read this text at the beginning of our time together. Luke 14, Jesus is eating with wealthy religious and social political leaders, and then he turns to the host and says, he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. You said, we tend to think of hospitality as simply having people over for dinner, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Because if we simply have people over for dinner, who would we naturally have over for dinner? Those we like and those who we like to be around and those who increase our social standing, who will give us a good time when they come to our house. Those who want to be around, but what makes Christian hospitality true is that you're hospitable to those whose presence cannot pay you back with a socially good time. Or with advancing your social status. They can't add to your social standing, and their presence doesn't necessarily make for an easy life for you. Romans 12 and Hebrews 13 both tell us also that biblical hospitality is to be practiced and active, even in its difficulty. In fact, right, again, like we said a couple weeks ago, like worship, practice, Worship is to be practiced, and so it is with biblical hospitality. In the NAS, Romans chapter 12, verse 13, says that we are to practice hospitality. Literally, it says to pursue it or to seek hospitality in the ESV. The verb here implies continuous action. That means that hospitality is not simply having distant relatives that you don't like in your house for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but it is a constant attitude and practice such that it becomes nearly daily, weekly, weekly. Our homes and lives should stand constantly ready for a strategic form of hospitality, a readiness to welcome those who would find their way at our, to our table. And when Romans 12 says positively, seek out hospitality, Hebrews 13 says negatively, it says don't neglect hospitality. And here it gets at some of our selfishness of hearts, right? Evidently, it is easy to neglect hospitality, to say, I did that at one time in my life, but I don't do it anymore. Because there is a painful, we might say sinful, and psychological force of gravity that constantly pulls our thoughts and affections and physical activities inward toward the center of our own life so that we focus entirely on what? Me and mine. That the idea of home is me and these few progeny that I've produced. Therefore, the most natural thing in the world is to neglect hospitality. It is the path of least resistance. All we have to do is yield to the natural gravity of a self-centered life, and the result will be is a life full of self in which there is no room for hospitality because we filled it with video games and soccer and all kinds of dinner parties with people that we like. In order for hospitality to happen, it must become, what I'm asking for here, is a radical shift that the center of your life, that you get up in the morning thinking about how might I be hospitable as opposed to how might I cram hospitality into my already overbooked life, that this is a radical recentering of our life. But the, the biblical form of hospitality, if we, if we seek this and provide this and live this way, it is a radically ordinary but so powerful apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We tell the good news by opening up our lives, and we tell people, come in and eat. And in so doing, lives are transformed. You might say, I can't make apologetic arguments. I can't make coherent discourse on the reality of God. I can't understand even all the nuances of other religions. But yes, you can bake bread, and you can make soup, and you can invite people into your house, and you can listen to them, and you can ask them questions. Even if you have to read them off a piece of paper. Cheat until it becomes natural. See, radical ordinary hospitality doesn't simply flow from us, does it? It's hard. It is relationally in life-altering reorientation if we're actually going to live into the biblical pattern of hospitality. And therefore, if you're going to do that, you have to prepare spiritually. The Bible calls spiritual preparation preparation a pretty masculine word warfare radically ordinary hospitality if you're going to engage in it is going to require for you to do some spiritual warfare to resist the natural inclination towards selfishness and self-centeredness and therefore if you're going to do spiritual warfare you must our second point experience hospitality personally you must be radically transformed by hospitality Christianity comes to life when, real, when you realize that you are the one who has experienced radical hospitality. The passage that we looked at this morning, Luke 14, is the parable of a feast. And the master longs for people to come into his feast. So he invites many people, the rich and his friends and the wealthy and the landowners. And he invites them to his feast these, are the, the, these represent the people who are around Jesus at that time having dinner. They represent the religious leaders and the wealthy and the politically connected. But they all make excuses and they say they reject his generous offer. And so what does he say to his servants in the parable? They've rejected me. So he says to the servants, go to the highways and the hedges and bring me the poor and the strangers, the blind and the crippled. What this is saying is Jesus is communicating that we are to bring in those who are the ostracized of the community. It is to say that you are to go in this this company of Jews and religious elite. He is saying, go find the Gentiles and bring them into my feast. And do you know who you are in the story? You are the blind and the poor and the crippled and the lame. Or have you forgotten? You see, the God-centered motivation for showing radical hospitality to strangers has been given from the earliest hospitality commandments about, about this by pointing to God's care for us when we were strangers and aliens. You know, the earliest, form, earliest command of hospitality is found in the most bizarre of places you might think to find it. Leviticus 19 Verses 33 and 34, it says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. What is the motivation for being good to strangers, for being hospitable Because of God's hospitality and going after us when we were strangers in Egypt, when we were enslaved in sin, when we were in a strange land, and he said, I will bring you out. And how did the Lord accomplish this? Hospitality was necessarily in the ancient days was because it was dangerous. So what did hospitality look like? What would be the minds of good Hebrews who read this in Leviticus and good Hebrews who, in the ancient Near East who hear Jesus and Apostle Paul and Peter talking about being hospitable? They would have this in mind that they would think of strangers who'd come to their city, and there would probably be no inns. There's there's not a hotel sort of industry for the most part then. And a traveler would come, and in order to find a safe place, they would simply prop themselves outside the city gates, usually near a market or a well. And they would wait for someone in the city to come out, come out of the city gates, to leave their home, to come out of the city gates, and to come and invite them in. Now, the member of the city and ancient culture actually had a responsibility as a neighbor to make sure that they were not inviting into the city someone who was dangerous or an enemy. And so they would vet that person, and they would ask them questions, and they would get to know them. And then ultimately, if once they had vetted them, they would bring them into the city. They would say, oh, I see that you're not a foe. I will bring them in. And then here, there was instructions for how they were to care for them. They were to feed them, and they were to close them, and they were to wash their feet and provide them rest. This is ancient Near Eastern hospitality. To go out of the city and bring them in. And to serve them at their own expense. Now, this is what is in mind. This brings us back to Hebrews chapter 13. When the writer of Hebrews says there, as we read earlier, show, do not neglect hospitality. He then roots his instructions based, just like in Leviticus times, God roots his instructions to show hospitality to strangers by pointing back to their salvation and how he drew them out of Egypt. Here we see the Hebrew writer says, show hospitality along with a bunch of other commandments. And then he roots it here in verse 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood, therefore let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. What Hebrews 13 is saying, that Jesus on the cross was him leaving the city and showing ancient Near Eastern hospitality. That God left the gates of heaven. He left the city that is beautiful, and he said, I will go outside the city, I will find the stranger, and by my own blood, I will make it possible for them to come in. This is what God did. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, God lowered himself, and at his own expense made it so you, a stranger, outside the city of God may be invited, not just simply into a city, but into the very household of God. And In the Hebrew, in the Hebrew word, uh, rules, you could stay for two days. But what's great about God's hospitality is when he invites you into his home, it's forever. And here is your spiritual warfare. See, to welcome us, Jesus became an infant. He had no place to lay his head. He had no place to go. He became a stranger even to his heavenly father so that he might bring us in. And here's the question. It is true that we have ceased to be hospitable because we filled our time, and Western culture is way too busy. That is absolutely true. But you're never going to radically reorient your life into these priorities to be hospitable until you remember once again what it was like when you were the stranger, what it was like when you were lost, and this is your spiritual warfare. And in order to be of people who fight for this radical reorientation is you must never lose your sense of wonder of the fact that God has brought you in. You, the poor, the blind, the crippled, the Gentile. To never lose that, that remembrance of what it was like to be a stranger of the world, and yet God loved you and cared for you and brought you in. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter two. We read this in our worship service already. Therefore, remember... That at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands. Just ignore that part for right now. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And yet now, you who were once strangers are now called sons through the work of Jesus. And you know... You know how you actually begin to experience that more deeply in your life? Because you hear, that, you hear that preached a lot here. At least you better hear it preached a lot here. By becoming, the way in which you experience this more deeply in your life, I actually would say that if you're going to engage in radical hospitality, you just have to start. And the way in which you're actually gonna re-engage and reignite your heart with an excitement over God's hospitality to you is actually to begin to be a conduit of hospitality. By becoming a conduit of hospitality is where you get to tell people and your home over and over and over again what story that I was once was lost, but now I am found. That I was once a stranger and I am now a son. That God brought me home. Here's what John Piper says in calling us to this. He says, the joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies, yikes, if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. When we practice hospitality, we become conduits of God's hospitality instead of self-decaying cul-de-sacs. And others, what he's saying in what he's arguing here is that where we receive the hospitality of God's kindness and grace and do not extend it to others, our own experience of God's hospitality will wilt and wane. Because you've been designed, designed to enjoy God's goodness by enacting it by participating in it. Our joy in the Lord can be cut off when we don't extend hospitality that God has shown in us, but you will grow in your zeal for the Lord by continuing to learn more and more information outside of practice. You cannot grow simply by coming in and hearing practices of how you are hospitable and how greatly hospitable God is to you, but it is through actually beginning to practice that into your life that you will begin to grow. We grow in a joy of the Lord by extending hospitality that we have received. So we should be thinking, man, he said that about, about being a stranger and alien in Ephesians chapter two, and it, it rang dull on my heart. And, and then therefore the question should be, why is it that the goodness of God's welcome and hospitality to you, why does it no longer tap deep into my soul? It could be because you need to become a conduit and that you need to be thinking about how I can draw the most people into the deep experience of God's hospitality by the use of your money, by the use of your things, by your home, by your church home. Who needs to be asked into this place and welcomed? And therefore, this leads us to our third point this morning. If we're going to be rediscover radical uh, hospitality, then we must picture hospitality vividly. Vividly. This, this is low-hanging fruit, and I, I, am, I don't want to pick on anybody because it's too easy. But hospitality is not entertainment. It, it is not tablescapes and elaborate food and becoming a fake foodie. It is not Southern living, and it is not Joanna Gaines. I think she's actually quite hospitable. It appears that her life actually is. But hospitality takes its cues from the Bible. Hospitality welcomes people into a humble house with dirty dishes in the sink, toys strewn across the living room, and in a place where dinner may not yet be ready. We do a terrible disservice when we put a charade on about what hospitality looks like. Hospitality looks really ordinary. So we need a new vision for hospitality. Imagine with me what hospitality could look like in your life. Envision with me living in proximity with the blind and the crippled and those who look differently than you, the impoverished. Brian Stevenson, the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, talks about proximity and how important it is for hospitality. He said, Many of us have been taught our whole lives that if there are parts of our town where the schools aren't good and where there's violence, drug addiction, despair, neglect, or abuse, you should stay as far away from those places as possible. And he said, I'm here tonight to tell you the opposite. I actually think to do justice, you have to get closer. You have to get closer. So that might mean you move into a place where you are not the only white face. It might mean you move to a place where your home no longer looks exactly the way you want to. If you want a vision of what this might look like, go over to Augusta one day. Check out Hope for Augusta. Look at what Stephen Pittman is doing in a place in which people are simply trying to do regentrification of the hood. They are seeking to actually bring redemption there. Envision with me what it might look like to have neighbors in your home. (laughs) I have a hard time imagining this. I live in a place where this neighborhood where people love to retire early and don't want to see each other. In fact, the first conversation I ever had with one of my, my next-door neighbor was, I went over to invite him over for dinner, and he said, you know what's so great about this neighborhood? No one talks to each other. <laughs> these are some of the curmudgeoniest white people I've ever been around in my life. <laughs> the idea of a bunch of these people having rice and beans at my house with my crazy children running all over the place, we look bizarre in my neighborhood, and praise God for that. Imagine this. A big pot of soup. Or rice and beans on your stovetop and people from your neighborhood arrive with cheese, sour cream, chips, sweet tea, lemonade. There's people sitting in lawn chairs in such a haphazard way that those who are new to your household and to your yard can't figure out who is new and who's supposed to belong there where conversations are happening between an international student who goes to the University of West Georgia for the semester and your vaguely racist neighbor who constantly comments about how immigrants are the problems that we have in America. Wouldn't it be great to see them having a conversation? One of, the greatest, one of the greatest moments of my life when I was a youth pastor was we began to do ministry at a department complex across the street. I lived in a city called Brookhaven, Mississippi, 12,000 people in the heart of the Deep South. Across the street was an almost entirely racially diverse apartment complex, and we were the wealthiest church in town. And we began engaging some of these youth to come to our youth group, and there was a woman in our church. This is what's great about um, coming to another church, is I can use these illustrations. <laughs> and I'm thinking about leaving just so I can come up with a lot of illustrations about you guys. Um, A lady named Jimmy Sistrunk. Jimmy Sistrunk looks something like Cruella de Vil. She would sit in the choir loft scowling like a vulture praying over dead doctrine. She was known as an outright racist. She would throw people and scream at people who walked into her yard And one of the beautiful things I ever saw was we had a crawfish boil, and I remember seeing Jimmy Sistrunk sitting there with these youth from across the street sucking the heads off crawfish, because she might be a southern lady, but she knew how to suck the head off a crawfish. (laughs) And there was a place where they could meet and begin to talk. I don't know if it changed her heart but it was good for the church. Envision with me leading a group for crisis mothers or fathers at pregnancy resources where you get to walk with young mothers through the early years of parenting, the fears of a crisis pregnancy, the inadequacies of young motherhood, and you get to be there through it all. That's hospitality. Envision with me meeting one-on-one as a mentor with someone with a student from 12 for Life or going out to God's farm and saying, I'll give my life to those who can not encourage my social standing. Envision with me becoming a safe family's host home, where a mom in a difficult spot with three children needs job training and discipleship, and her children need a safe place to stay. And you and her three kids, and you invite her over while her kids live in your home for a period of time, and you guys, one night, you have ice cream together, and you play a board game. Can you see it? Listen, it doesn't have to be pretty. In fact, it won't be. The most radical hospitality that my wife and I have ever done has been one of the most, has brought out ugliness in us that I never imagined was there. And it's brought out ugliness in our home and a distress in our home that sometimes I can't hardly stand to live with. And yet it has been good for us. It doesn't have to be pretty, and it won't be. And don't even let the realities of hospitality that do not reach these romanticized visions that I'm giving you keep you from laboring. And don't let the lies of the evil one tell you that when you invite your neighbors over, that suddenly in the course of a few invitations, that suddenly there's going to be people in and out of your yard, and it's just going to be this beautiful free-for-all. It won't be. It will take time. But neither will your... Neither will you have impact unless you're willing to start with something and start small. Because for most of us, we have spent so little time with others that we don't know the questions that they're asking. And so all we think about is what they might ask, as if we have to have all the answers before we can invite people into our house. When really, people, very rarely do they need you to answer their questions. They need you to listen Jim Peterson, who's wrote one of the most well-known books on evangelism, tells the story of his friend Mario, with whom he had studied the Bible for four years. Four years before Mario became a Christian. And the Bible studies were these deep studies in God's Word and these long discussions on philosophy because Mario was a Marxist intellectual. And so they had to go around and around and around all these worldview issues for four years. But a couple years after his conversion, Jim and Mario were reminiscing And he asked, Mario asked him, Do you know what it really was that made me decide to become a Christian? And Jim thought of all their Bible studies and all their philosophical discussions. Mario's reply took him by surprise. He said, Remember the first time that I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. And as I sat there observing you and your wife and your children and how you related to each other, I asked myself, When will I ever have a relationship like this with my fiancé? And I realized that the answer, if I was honest, was never. I concluded at that time that I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own relational survival. Peterson said he remembers that event when Mario came to his house for the first time, and he remembers his children behaving badly and him yelling at them and having to discipline them in front of Mario. And yet it was that event that brought Mario to Christ and bound them together. Peter comments, "Our family was our." Peter comments, "Our family was unaware of its influence on Mario. God had done His work through our family without our knowing it. We tend to see the weaknesses and the incredulities in our life, and our reactions recoil at the thought of letting outsiders get close enough to see us as we really are, even if our assessment is accurate. It is my observation that any Christian who is sincerely seeking to walk with the Lord, in spite of all of his flaws, is still reflecting something." of Christ. And so, King's Chapel, I end the words here with one of the 20th century's greatest hosts, a man named Francis Schaefer, who hosted literally thousands of people at a place that came to be, to be known as Brie. He said this, don't start with a big program. Don't look to create some big budget at your church. Simply begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, it is difficult to preach upon such things that one is not enacting. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive me for living the lazy, the lazy river of hospitality, the easy way, resting on the laurels of past hospitable actions, and that this is not an orientation to my life. And Lord, I fear it's because I rest and walk and remember very infrequently what it was like to live without you, Lord, perhaps as a covenant child, that is maybe one of the weaknesses. That <laughs> I haven't experienced it, maybe the depths of what it is. But Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would impress upon me my strangerliness. My other otherness to you. Uh, so Lord, will we dwell deeply in your welcome to us every morning. Like a father who welcomes children people who run away like prodigals and yet were welcome back, people who become strangers to you who were once called sons that we would become into your presence day and, and day and night. And would we then take that energy and that power and that motivation and live that way for others? May King's Chapel corporately be this kind of place. Oh, Spirit of living God, would you fill us up for that task? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.